I love our staff. I'm slightly biased, but that's okay. I love our staff. I, uh, I, I know last week we got a chance to, uh, to love on Terrence a little bit. This is Staff Appreciate, Minister Appreciation Month, and uh, we're going to celebrate it by appreciating our ministers. We have incredible people here. I was telling somebody this morning what I love, our staff always says, I love this church, I love this church, and, uh, and I want to make sure that they can say, and my church loves me. And uh, last week we got to hear from Terrence and just asked them to share a testimony of how God called them here. Well, this morning we have a unique testimony. David, David's going to come on up because uh, he's going to share with us how God called him here not once but twice. Uh, and that's exciting. A little bit of a background. David is married to Laura, uh, who's wonderful. Uh, he has two wonderful children, Elaine and T. Zilla. That'd be Tyler Burdishaw, one of our newest members of Westmead. Uh, so we're glad to have him back. He loves reading. Taco Bell and Auburn. And uh, little known fact that I've learned this week about David, one of his favorite children's books, The Giving Tree. <laughs> you had to be here last week to get that joke. Dave, come tell us about God. <laughs> That's a true story. I really do love that book. I started crying when he started talking about it. <clears throat> the first time I was called by the Westmead family... I was an employee at the FedEx World Hub in Memphis, Tennessee. What that means is that I would tuck my kids into bed on the upstairs floor of my in-law's house. I would spend the next hour or so with my wife. I would suit up in an all-Navy FedEx uniform. I would put on steel-toed work boots. I would drive to the FedEx employee parking lot on Airways Boulevard across from the Memphis airport. I would load up on an employee bus. I would, un- I would unload at the main gate of the World Hub, go through security, and finally I would go on to the north input where I would unload boxes and packages from shipping containers, put those boxes and packages onto one of three conveyor belts where they would eventually make their way to houses and businesses across the world. Over time... I would be promoted to tug driver. Woohoo! <laughs> I would drive a small vehicle like the, like the kind you see at the airport out to the incoming jet airplanes, pick up a line of cans, drive them to various inputs where the freight would then be unloaded. It was on one of those nights just prior to leaving the house for work that I received a call from Pastor Scotty Hogan of Westmead Baptist Church. It was not the first call I received from someone at Westmead. The first was from a member of the search team, Jim Swindell. Because I had never heard of Westmead Baptist Church or even been to Decatur, Alabama, Mr. Jim identified himself and stated the reason for his call. I spoke to him briefly and frankly. I thought it would be the last time I spoke with anyone from Westmead. Months later, Brother Scotty called, and through a series of remarkable acts of God's grace, I met Brother Scotty, Miss Kathy, Jim Swindell, Mike Smith, 
Scott Ridgway, Nancy MacArthur, and Cindy Sandoval. And through another series of remarkable acts of grace, I met you, the family of faith called Westmead Baptist Church. The second time I was called by the Westmead family, I was an employee of All Star Barber. I worked at a barber shop. (laughs) Having recently graduated from Paul Mitchell and planning to move to Huntsville, where Laura and I would serve the Lord in an intentionally bivocational way, Brother Scotty called again. The call followed another series of remarkable acts of God's grace and an unexplainable work of sovereign guidance by His Holy Spirit. That series of events alone could take an hour to share. But the short of it is that as a result of that work of grace and the Holy Spirit's leading, we resumed our service to the Lord and his people at Westmead. The question we could ask is, how does that happen? Why does a church call a FedEx employee who pulls not only the baggage of others, but his own? Why, knowing full well that person's faults and shortcomings, does a church call that same guy out of a barber shop to serve again? Because you're weird. (laughs) It's true. I can't think of a handful of churches in America that would do what you did. So why? There are probably several answers that could be given. But I think foundationally it's because Westmead believes in second chances and another opportunity. Because the love and grace that you declare with your mouths is lived out day to day in very real and practical ways. That love and grace changes people's lives forever. I know because it changed mine. And it not only changed my life, but also the life of my wife, our son, and our daughter. Ephesians 2 says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins... You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It is only because God's grace that you have been saved. 
For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. How does that happen? Why does God choose to love those who are rebellious against him? Why does anyone, anywhere, receive the grace of God at all? Because God believes in second chances and another opportunity. He proved his love towards sinners through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who he made sin so that we could become his righteousness and then raised him from death so that we could experience real life. If you are sidelined because of sin, God wants you to know that he has made a way out for you. You can be forgiven. You can have life. You can serve him faithfully with joy and peace. If you feel like you are currently at your worst, or if you feel like it's all good and you don't need any help at all, Know this, God is rich in mercy. His grace is big enough for those labeled bad and deep enough for those self-proclaimed good. God desires to point you to you in future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Turn from your sin and run to the arms of Jesus. I'm thankful today for second chances and another opportunity. I'm thankful today that they were made possible for me through the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ and of my faith family, Westmeet Baptist Church. I love you. So the choir... Wanted you to have a little kindness. Say, we appreciate you, David. So that's from our choir. We love this guy. I'm so thankful for him. I tell you what, Dave. What a good word. What a good word. I tell you, if you were playing on your phone during that, you missed out. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. David's already preached the sermon. We're just going to kind of follow up and wrap it up and go home. But one of the things that I want to point out to you, I'd already written it down because I didn't know exactly what David was going to share. If you've ever been around David, you cannot have a conversation with David that the word grace doesn't get brought up. And, And let me ask you a question. That's not a David thing, church. That should be a Christian thing. Why, I I hear that, and I wrote that out, I'm like, man, why does it come up in more my conversations? 
Whereas I'm just casually talking to somebody, the word grace isn't just brought up over and over and over. Because that's my story. That's David's story. If you're in Christ, that is your story. So I love that about David. So we're going to be looking at this Ephesians 2 passage that he talked about. And uh, just enjoy some time in God's word today. It's going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So let's read this together. It says, as for you, and David just read these. We're going to read it again. I don't think you can read God's word too much. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. I don't know why this room is so silent. God's word. For it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's word, church. Is that your story? Let's look at what it says here. I want us to see three things about this text, and we were talking about it this week. We could literally be here for the next seven and a half hours breaking down these ten verses. So if you want to, as everybody's getting an emergency phone call and headed to the door, we're just going to pull out three truths from this text, looking at it from the helicopter perspective. The first thing is written right there in the first verse. The first thing we need to realize about ourselves is that our past is hopeless. Our past is hopeless. Look at that. As for you, understand, I know Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, But he's writing to the church. Guess what? Last time I checked, we were. A church. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Understand what the word doesn't say there. I think Brother Scotty used to say this. It doesn't say you were sick in your sins. It doesn't doesn't say you were hurt in your transgressions. What does it say, church? You were. We're dead in your transgressions. Dead. Don't answer this out loud, but I just want you to think. What In your home, in your lifestyle, what do you do with dead things? I'm not a very skilled person. I don't have a lot of skills, you know. I'm really good at things like helping people move. Because I'm good at picking things up and setting them down. Like, that's all I can do. People are like, oh, I need to build a stairwell at my house. Don't call me. I mean, I can bring the lumber to you. I, I, I have no 
skill. But I have friends that do. So it's kind of like second best, I guess. I got friends who are musicians. I got friends who are artists. I got friends who are writers. I got friends who are grill masters. And those are good friends to have, for the record. I got friends with all kinds of talents. And they work on a lot of different things. And they use a lot of different things. But one thing all of them have in common is they all use the same kinds of tools to do their practice. You know what kinds of tools they use? Quality tools. For my friends who are musicians, they're not just tying a string to a stick and trying to play it. No, they go get a nice guitar. They go get a nice instrument. They take care of it so that they can play it. For my, for my friends who are artists, the people that can draw or paint, they use new brushes. They use fresh paints. A friend of mine's a woodworker. You know, he would go and get nice wood, fresh wood to, to, to do stuff with, to build stuff and to cut it down and to carve it out into stuff. Grill masters, they go get choice cuts, you know, and then they use the best charcoal or they use a, a certain type of wood if they're smoked, uh, they're smoking the, what they're cooking. It's, it's incredible. They use quality things to do what their gift is with. Y'all want to hear something pretty amazing about our salvation story? God goes to the trash heap. God goes to the graveyard. God goes to the refuse pile, and he pulls out that which is dead to start his work. Church, today, just as our choir has already set the standard for us, I want us to be excited today as we walk through God's word today, all right? We're not free preaching a funeral. We are proclaiming our story of being alive in Christ Jesus. So if it's okay, if everybody needs to roll your shoulders a little bit and relax, we're just going to have fun today in church, all right? All right? All right. God goes and starts with that which has been left behind. He starts with that that is dead. The only thing we know what to do with dead is we make it look pretty and then we put it in the ground. That's how we do because that's all you can do with it. But not God. God takes that which is dead. Everybody in this room has been touched and affected by death in some way. And you know what I'm talking about when it comes to how we handle dead things. We don't have anything to do with them. But God, but God says that's where I'm going to start. And David was right. In our natural state, how we were born, the natural nature that we were born on this earth with does not crave God. It does not crave fellowship with God. It does not crave obedience with God. It does not crave any type of union or unity with God. Matter of fact, God's commands, our natural self that we were born with, is going to rebel and revolt against those because we don't want those. And our natural sinful self, there is nothing about God that we desire. Therefore, we are dead. Dead in our sin. Dead in our transgressions. There's nothing that we crave of God. And there's also nothing we deserve of God. It says in verse 2, it says, we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are what? Disobedient. Guys, this is our natural state. Talks about children of disobedience in a little bit in this text. We are the children of disobedience. 
That is who we are by nature. And when we are naturally children of disobedience, what do we deserve? Says it right here. Wrath. Wrath. Anybody in here has ever had a good mama? You've experienced wrath. That's why you're laughing right now. Mainly because she's probably not in the room. That's why you're laughing. Man, I remember one time I was little. I did something really genius, and my mom didn't like it. And boy, she came in swinging, you know? And I'll never forget, I dodged. (laughs) Anybody in here ever dodged? Yeah, I see that hand. Yes, praise the Lord. How'd that work out for you? Because let me tell you how it worked out for me. It was not good. I dodged her wrath, maybe the first time. And boy, her her chin came down to her, her eyes got real big. you get over here (laughs) kind of put me in a corner i ain't got nowhere to go the wrath we were deserving of wrath when it comes to god we see god's wrath go look in the old testament people look at the old testament talk about the wrath of god they reference the old testament you look at sodom and gomorrah the wrath of god consuming two cities talk about the wrath of god think about uzzah uzzah in the old testament all he was trying to do was help out but he incurred the wrath of god and all he was trying to do was help Think about the nation of Israel wandering for 40 years, wandering for 40 years for an entire generation to die out. People look at that and be like, wow, God is so wrathful. He's so, his justice is very wrathful in that. But thank goodness we got the New Testament. We got the New Testament now, and now we, we have the love of Jesus. Church, understand this. And if you've been a part of our Sunday night small groups, then you can probably remember recently we talked about two people named Ananias and Sapphira. Ask them about the wrath of God. We get to the New Testament, and God doesn't eliminate his wrath, but he justifies his wrath by we see the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, right? So that when we look at this text and recognize that we're dead, that we recognize in our natural state we crave and desire and pursue disobedience because it's all we're good for, and even in all that, because of our disobedience, it leads to death, we are deserving of God's wrath. We have to understand something. A perfect God... A perfect and holy God does not just dismiss sin. He doesn't just sweep disobedience under the rug and pretend like everything's okay now that Jesus came. It's the quite the opposite. Because Jesus came, we are more deserving of his wrath now. So that when we talk about this beautiful thing about the blood of Jesus, for those of you who are in Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You remember the night when he was praying in the garden and he said, God, if there's any way, please let this cup pass from me. The cup he was referencing was just kind of the the, the figurative sense of talking about the cup of wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we're going to get to this in just a minute, you understand that the blood of Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on your account. Isn't it, Terrence? That's a good word of God. When Jesus said, I am here, God, not on them, pour it on me. That when we, I'm getting ahead of myself. We don't get to that because it starts with two words. Churches starts with two words. Probably my two favorite words in scripture when they're put next to each other. And we see it in verse four. Now, in, in my translation these two words aren't next to each other but that's okay because we can understand what it says 
that when we see that we were deserving of death because of our sin and because of our death and what we're because of our sin we're deserving of God's wrath we see in verse 4 these two words but God if y'all go and I, I was a history minor in college I wasn't good at it I was just fascinated by it but if you go and you study history all throughout history every single major event in history there was a turning point you think about all these famous battles or wars there was a turning point that ensured the victory. If you go back and look at all these discoveries, there was a turning point that opened the door for that discovery to happen, for the uh, foundation of societies that were, that were founded or claimed or discovered. There was a turning point that allowed these things to take place. Church, this is the greatest turning point in all of history, but God. You, me, dead. For the record... There's nothing you could do about that. Nothing. But God can. There's nothing you can do to change your state from death to life. There's nothing but God. Nothing can bring you back to life but God. Nothing can absorb the wrath that's deserving for you of your sin But God, so we talked about our our past is hopeless, our present is priceless. Look in verse 4, look at what takes place here. Look at these things listed in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Let's look at what God has done for us in these verses. The first thing that we see that God has done for us is that he loves us. And this does not eliminate, this does not disqualify his wrath. This is basically a brand new story. God loves us. He looks at something dead and he loves us. I mean, let's be honest. When we go to funerals, when we experience people close to us that lose a loved one, we give them sympathy, we give them pity, we give them these things. And we love them through it. But look at what God does. God loves us. He doesn't pity us. God doesn't look at me in my death, in my deadness and say, oh, poor little guy. You know what? I'm just going to bring him back to life. It's just fine. It's just... No, he didn't do it out of pity. He did it out of love. If you want to know the difference, I want to read this, this story to you. It says, the grown daughter of a man I know is an alcoholic. Alcoholic. I was visiting his home one day when she was delivered to his door in the grip of her alcoholism. She had drunk almost an entire bottle of whiskey. Her temper was flaming and abusive. Her face was flushed. Her manner belligerent. Her actions violent. I thought of the young girl I had met years before, before drink laid its devilish hand on her life. I looked at the picture of the young, unspoiled girl that still hung on the wall of this man's home. I pitied the poor soul with all my heart for the terrible shipwreck she had made of her life, for the ruin of her womanhood, and for her slavery to such a cruel and relentless tyrant. Her father took her gently by the arm, ignoring her abuse. He steered her unsteady footsteps to his car, He carefully settled her in, his face drawn and his eyes filled with pain. She thrashed around, but he patiently strapped her into the seat, drove her home, and put her to bed. I pitied her. 
He loved her. Now imagine that times infinity. That that is how God loves you. He doesn't pity us, church. It's not out of sympathy that he has done these things. What has God done for us? He loves us. And when you look at this text, Paul doesn't write of God's love. He writes of God's great love for us. If you leave here this morning and you don't think of anything else about what took place in this room other than what we and our selfishness want to come away with, I want you to think of this, that God loves you greatly. He doesn't pity you. He doesn't feel sorry for you. He loves you. He loves you. So the first thing we see in this text that God does for us is he loves us. The second thing he does for us is that he made us alive in Christ. Again, only God can take that which is dead and bring it to life. Think about that. Parents, your children, you've lost a family pet or something. You can't do anything about it other than console your children. But God takes death and brings it back to life. If you want an example of this, you flip over to the Gospels, you see a man, a guy by the name of Lazarus. This is a perfect example of what Paul's talking about here. Lazarus was dead and laid up in the tomb for three days. Jesus walked in and said, Lazarus, come out. And dude comes bouncing out the tomb. I really hope I never go to that funeral. Because there are going to be some people else scattering. I mean, that's going to get crazy. But that's what happened. That's what took place. But look at how, how he made us alive. Look at what it says here. Made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. That word even, I love that how he uses that word even because we use it all the time. We use the word even to explain something, to increase the, uh, the drama of the story, to increase the the likelihood or the impossibility or the improbability that something were to take place. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know what? My team won the game even though we were without our starter. Hey, you know what? At work, we were able to finish the project even though we were missing a few people. Hey, we got the project done on time even though we started later than everyone else. We put that word even in to just kind of up the ante. Look at what Paul uses it for there in verse 5. Made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. There's no reason for us to be allowed to live, much less salvation. There's no reason. It's not just improbabilities. There's impossibilities. And Paul is pointing us to this and says, even when... We have been made alive. So we see that God loves us. God made us alive in Christ. Look at what else he does for us in this passage. He raised us up with Christ. Now this, this might be a little bit uh, tricky. So I want you to try to wrap your, just walk with me for a little bit. Because I want you to understand what took place here. I want you to understand what he's pointing us to here. When he says he raised us up with Christ. To understand this, that God reached down. In spite of my sin, God reached down in spite of the misery and the junk that I had buried myself in. And because of Christ, raised me up in that. 
The same way that when Jesus was in the tomb, he was raised to life. And we talk about this a lot at funerals. We talk about that this a lot when people are facing death. That, you know what, hey, on that day, you're going to see Jesus face to face. On that day, yes, we will see Jesus face to face. But understand this, church, when you're in Christ, that day has already come for you. That when, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, that's the same Jesus that because of his death and resurrection said, Justin, you're next. That when Jesus walked out the tomb, he said, leave the door open. I'm the firstborn of the resurrection, and Justin's going to come in a few years later after me. Guys, the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb was the same day that we were raised up with Christ. The tomb door is left open for us. Can we not praise God for that this morning, church? This is amazing what God has shown, what God has done for us. What God has done for Christ, because of Christ, in those in Christ, he has done for us. No wonder David talks about grace all the time in his conversations. What else has God done for us? It's not like enough. I mean, look at that. He keeps going. It says he seated us with him. Now understand this. When it says he seated us with him, there is room for one person on that throne. And it ain't me. And if it's going to hurt your feelings, you're going to have to deal with it. But it ain't you either. There's room for one person on that throne. But look at this, when we study the scripture, when it says that we are now being made righteous because of Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are seated with him. You know, when you think about a throne, you think about authority, you think about the king, you think about how his word, his majesty is above all things. So when it says that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are seated with him on the throne, we have to understand that because of Christ's victory over death and sin... In Christ, we have been given victory over death and sin. And in the name and in the power of Jesus, we can overcome sin. You know what that means, church? Do you know what that means? That means no more excuses, church. It means no more, well, I just, it's just too hard for me. No, it's not. If you're in Christ and you have the power of the name of Jesus, it's not too hard for you. Stand on the word, believe in the blood of the lamb that's purified you from all sin and move forward in the face of evil. We have no excuses. There is no more. I was born this way. You were born dead. So you were right in that. But because of Jesus, you are now alive and you have victory over sin in the grave. What's stopping us, church? What's stopping us from living out our faith that we are seated with him? We have been given authority over the powers that rule this world. The powers of darkness and enemy and sin. And we, in the name of Jesus, can overcome these things. We are no longer allowed excuses. But the church should move forward and glorify the name of Jesus. Because it is the name that is above every name, including my failure and my sin, that he has already brought me back from and absorbed the wrath in. Our past is hopeless Our present is priceless. And if you look at the last few verses of this text, we see that our future is boundless. Our future is boundless. Look at this. The first thing he talks about this. It says our salvation is a gift. Our salvation is a gift. It's given freely. It's not earned. You know what, Terrence? Last week, somebody gave you a gift card to a restaurant, right? That's really nice. 
What's she going to do with it? <laughs> they said some of them already used. Used for what? Pick a lot. Used for what? You ate with them. Okay, so they gave you a gift card to go eat food, and you actually went and used it, right? So when we talk about you were given a gift, it was freely given to you, and you went and did something with it. You went and used it, right? So when we recognize that when people give us a gift, if somebody gives you a new set of tools, don't give me a new set of tools. They're going to be like, ooh, look. They're going to be like paperweights to hold things like, oh, this is, don't let them blow away. Say you know how to work on something. Some give you tools. You're just like, man, they're too shiny to use. They're so pretty. No, it's like, sweet, let's get to work. Some of my friends that have these gifts that we talked about earlier, you get a new set of brushes, you get a new instrument. What are you going to do? You're going to sit down and start using it. Look at this. Look at this, how this points it out. That our salvation is a gift. It's freely given. It's not earned. It's been given to us. We who are in Christ have accepted this gift of salvation. That's the gift he references here. The gift is salvation. And now it's time for us to use that gift to go make others know about that gift. There's work to do, church. There's a kingdom to build. And the first thing we see is that salvation is a gift given to us for a purpose. Second thing we see is that it's not by works. It is not by works we have been given this gift. You know why? Because it's not about us. It's not about you. It's sure isn't about me. When it says it's not about us, it's basically eliminating from when we get to heaven to somebody walk up to me and be like, well, yeah, well, I'm here because I, uh, I, I did this really awesome thing. I was so good at it. That's why I'm here. No, you understand when we get to heaven, nobody has the right to say I'm here because I. Everybody's going to be in heaven because they're going to say I'm here because of Jesus. Because it is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not by works. Y'all understand that if you study scripture, if you look back at what already took place, there was somebody that was in heaven one time that started getting caught up in about pride and about what they could do and about how awesome they were. His name was Lucifer. And because of his pride, he was cast out and a third of the angels went with him. It's in scripture. I'm not making this up. So when we see this idea of pride, we see how it separates us from God because it is our sinfulness that's living out in us. It's not by works. It's not about you. It's not how good you are or what you're able to accomplish. But guess what? The good side of that, it's not how bad you are. It's not how bad you failed either. That the invitation of Jesus is for all. And then thirdly, if you keep looking at this, verse 10, there's work to do. There's work to do. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, 16. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So when we get to this idea that our future is boundless, it all kind of keeps coming down to this idea that there's a kingdom to build, church. We got work to do. We're not given a gift just to sit it on a mantle. We're given a gift to go and use it and do something about it so that others can get it too. Because we recognize in sharing that gift with others, it's not about us. It's about pointing them to a Savior, which is Jesus. And guess what? We were created for these things. It says that we were prepared, these works were prepared in advance for us to do, which means that God's plan for your life wasn't just to get you to salvation. He already had a plan in place on the other side of it, to go and do something about it. So church, boy, I'm looking at a bunch of dead people this morning. My question is, are you alive in Christ? Are you still 
dead? Or in Christ have you been made alive? In Christ have you experienced the pricelessness of your present? You know, we say that our past is hopeless. For some of you, that that might still be your present. And I'm just going to ask you this question right now. Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Just think about it. Answer it in your own heart. You don't owe me an answer, by the way. But you're going to have an answer. And the simple truth is this. If we do not give our lives to Christ, and on that last day, the wrath that we talked about will be stored up for you. And I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm telling you the truth. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God has been absorbed by the blood of the Lamb so that we might have life and life to the full. This morning, is your past hopeless and your present priceless? If so, then recognize that your future is boundless. This morning, is your present and past hopeless? And if it is, what's stopping you from trusting Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? No wonder David talks about grace all the time. I'm thankful you do, brother. Keep leading. Keep pointing us to Jesus as well as you do. And church, may we realize there's a kingdom to build. Let's get to work. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the privilege we have of opening your word, of declaring it as truth because it is from you. God, I thank you that it is true. I thank you that this reality of our life in Christ, of how we were dead, and you literally brought life to us. You picked me. You called my name. And God, I thank you for the day the Holy Spirit translated that to I heard you were, that I needed you. God, there is nothing about us that, that craves fellowship with you, but Father, you still won't give up in your pursuit of us. Today, Father, there may be someone here who's still running. And God, I pray that you open their eyes and rec- help them recognize the death that they live in. God, I pray that you would let them hear your voice call their name. And God, today they would respond in obedience to come to you that they may have life. And God, in the same sense, the church, while we may have been brought to life in Christ, God, we still fall to our sinful, selfish nature sometimes, Father. And And I lift up the name of my brother or my sister in this room, God, that professes Jesus as Lord and has no doubt about their salvation, but God, they just haven't been living in a way that glorifies your name. That this concept of having conversation about grace is foreign to them, God, because they've been living for themselves. God, this morning, would you help them remember that it's not about them? And God, bring them back to you. And God, it doesn't matter what it is that separates them, that's that they're holding on to or that has created distance. God, you are greater than those things. Help them see that, God. Help them see that you are more. Restore them to you by whatever means necessary. God, you're calling each one of us 
we're not in Christ, you're calling us to your own. If we're in Christ, you're calling us to do something about it. And God, it's not about doing something at the end of a service. It's about doing something for the rest of our lives. So God, today, maybe for the first time, however you're calling us, may we answer in obedience. If that's you today, if if there's something that you know God's calling you to, I would love to pray with you, to talk with you about it. I'll be down here, down front. You can just come down here and we'll have a conversation. But this morning, let's stop putting off God and let's answer his call, whatever it may be. Will you stand as we sing? My hope is big.